Chapter Thirty Two of the Western United States. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Western United States: A Geographical Reader by Harold Wellman Fairbanks. Chapter Thirty Two: The National Parks and Forest Reserves. The people who first pushed into the unknown country west of the Mississippi, in the earlier half of the last century, were chiefly hunters and trappers. They did not intend to make permanent homes in the wilds, but rather to stay only so long as they could secure an abundance of fur-bearing animals. Then came the discovery of the precious metals, and thousands of gold-seekers crossed the plains, and spread out over the mountains of the Cordilleran region. They, too, expected to get rich by making use of the resources of the country, and return to their homes in the east. At the present time, the destruction of our forest and serious injury to the water supply has been threatened through the organization of large lumber companies. Those interested in lumbering usually live far removed from the scenes of their operations, and consequently care little about the condition in which the deforested lands are left. The farmers were the first permanent occupants of the West. Unlike the wandering trappers and miners, they established homes, and made the land richer instead of poorer. As long as the population was scanty, there was not much danger of exterminating the wild animals, and the demands for timber were small. Our forefathers, who settled the eastern states, had to contend with the forest. Nearly every acre of ground had to be laboriously cleared, before anything could be planted. It was only natural that they should come to regard the forest as a hindrance rather than a blessing. As the settlers spread westward to the prairies and plains, they came upon a region almost destitute of forests, but still farther, in the mountains of the Continental Divide and the Pacific Slope, they again found extensive forest. To them it seemed impossible that these forests could ever be exhausted, and therefore little care was taken for their preservation. As the population increased, more and more lumber was needed for building purposes. Before the sawmill came, split lumber was used, and the shaker-maker did not hesitate to cut down the largest and most valuable pines on the mere possibility that fifteen or twenty feet of the butt would split well enough to make shakes. It made no difference to him that the whole trunk rotted upon the ground. When the sawmills were built, and there came a demand from abroad for lumber, the forests were attacked upon a much larger scale. The need of the moment was all that concerned the lumbermen, and they took no care for the preservation of the young trees, which in time would have renewed the supply. The litter of the trunks and branches, which they left upon the ground, furnished fuel for the fires which frequently swept over these areas and killed their remaining growth. As a result of these fires, the few animals that have escaped the hunters have been killed, or driven from their homes, and the forest cover, which would retain much of the moisture and preserve it for the supply of the streams in summer, has been destroyed. The removal of the forest cover leads also to the washing away of the soil, the shoaling of the streams, floods in spring, and low water in summer. In fact, all the people and industries of the region are affected by its loss. It may take hundreds of years for the country to recover, 
Indeed, if the rainfall is light, the forest may never grow again, without artificial aid. Seeking to enlarge his pastures by burning the underbrush sets fires which often destroy hundreds of square miles of forest. The summer camper and the prospector also frequently go on their way without extinguishing the campfire, though a great forest fire may be the result. Ours is a fertile and productive earth, capable of supporting a multitude of living things. For ages the lower animals, as well as savage man, lived under the protection of nature, making the best use of her products of which they were capable. But they never brought about the unnecessary and often wanton destruction of which we are guilty, we, who call ourselves civilized. In killing the wild animals, we cannot make the plea of necessity, as can savages who have no other means of support. Likewise, there is no necessity for killing the beautiful singing-birds, merely for their plumage. The forests are cut away without any thought of the retribution which nature is sure to bring upon us. They are of vast importance to the well-being of the country, and are the natural possession of all its people. We ought not to permit them to be destroyed indiscriminately for the benefit of a few. We need lumber for many purposes. But a careful treatment of the forest, with an eye to their continuance, the plan of cutting large trees and preserving the small ones, is a very different thing from our present wasteful methods. Every summer the air is filled with the smoke of burning forest, and the lumbermen are at work harder than ever, felling virgin forest upon more and more remote mountain slopes. Books of travel, written fifty years ago, tell of animal life in such abundance in many portions of the West, that we can hardly believe their stories. A description of California, written in 1848, mentions elk, antelope, and deer, as abundant in the Great Valley. How many of us living at the present time have ever seen one of these animals in its native haunts? There is hope now that this wasteful use of nature's gift will soon be stopped. Large areas of the mountainous portions of the public domain are being set aside as parks and forest reserves. The parks contain some of the finest scenery and most wonderful natural curiosities to be found upon the face of the whole earth. This wild scenery, together with the forest and plants of every kind, as well as the animals and birds that inhabit these areas, are to remain just as they were when the first white man looked upon them. The parks form asylums for the wild creatures, which have been hard-pressed for so many years. In the Yellowstone National Park, where they have been protected the longest, the animals have lost their fear of man, and act as if they knew that they are safe within its limits. In the Yellowstone, you may see great herds of elk feeding in the rich meadows. Deer stand by the roadside and watch you pass, while the bears have become so tame about the hotels that they make themselves a nuisance. Sixteen bears at a time have been seen feeding at the garbage pile near the Grand Canyon Hotel. The forest reserves differ from the parks in that they are established for utility rather than for pleasure. The forests now existing are to be cared for by the government, and to be wisely used when lumber is needed. Fires are to be avoided so far as possible, and burned areas are to be replanted with trees. Another object to be accomplished is the restitution of the forest about the heads of the streams, so as to preserve the summer water supply. 
Another object to be accomplished is the retention of the forest, about the heads of the streams, so as to preserve the summer water supply. The water runs off more slowly from a slope, covered with vegetation, than from a barren one, and therefore has more time to soak into the ground. This is a very important matter in all mountainous districts, particularly where the rainfall is light. The Yellowstone National Park is situated upon the Continental Divide in northwestern Wyoming. It is largely a plateau, with an elevation of 7,000 to 8,000 feet above the level of the sea. The surface of the plateau is covered with forest, meadows, and lakes, but the region is particularly remarkable for the geysers and hot springs, and the Grand Canyon and falls of the Yellowstone River. Springs dot the surface of many parts of the park. The hot water is continually bringing mineral substances, the chief of which is silica, from the depths of the earth and depositing them about the orifices of the springs. In this manner, wonderful basins, terraces, and cones have been built up, while the rocks have been either reddened or bleached out and softened into a form of clay. The park region must have been for a long period the seat of volcanic action, for nearly all of the rocks are cooled lavas. While the heat has disappeared from the surface, it must still be very great below, if we may judge by the quantities of hot water continually issuing from the springs. In many a subterranean cavern, steam accumulates until its pressure becomes too great for the column of water occupying the channel that leads to the surface. Then the water is suddenly and forcibly expelled, giving rise to a geyser eruption. When the pressure of the steam has been exhausted, the water sinks back into the earth, leaving the basin of the geyser nearly, or quite, empty, until the steam has again collected. Each geyser has its own period of eruption, and is generally very regular. One little geyser, known as the economic, because it throws out but little water, spouts regularly about every five minutes. Other geysers are active at intervals of several hours, while some take several years to get ready for a new eruption, and then spout whole rivers of boiling water. In the upper geyser basin the effect is very impressive, particularly upon a cool morning. The clouds of steam and the throbbing or roaring geysers lend to the region a weird and unearthly aspect. The Yellowstone Lake is a large body of water situated almost upon the Continental Divide, before the canyon or Great Falls, or even the Yellowstone River itself existed, the lake stood about one hundred and fifty feet higher than at present, and its water emptied into the Pacific Ocean instead of the Gulf of Mexico. The drainage was changed by the work of a small stream, having its source in the volcanic plateau north of the lake. It deepened its channel, and extended its headwaters back until they tapped the lake at a point where the rim of the basin was lowest and so drew away its waters in the opposite direction. The Yellowstone River, with its deep, wondrously colored canyon and grand waterfalls, is the result of this change. To the south of Yellowstone Park, but included in one of the forest reserves, are Jackson Lake and the Teton Range. The three Tetons, one of which reaches a height of over 13,000 feet, were evidently noted landmarks for the hunters and trappers in the early days, for you will find them mentioned in many of the narratives of those times. The precipitous range, 
with its crown of jagged peaks and the beautiful lake nestling at its base, presents a picture never to be forgotten. Very different from the region which we have been studying is that embracing the Crater Lake National Park, which is situated upon the summit of the Cascade Range in southern Oregon. Here occurred, not many thousand years ago, one of the strangest catastrophes which, so far as we know, has ever overtaken any portion of our earth. Towering over the present basin of Crater Lake was a great volcano, reaching probably nearly three miles toward the sky. During the glacial period it stood there, its slopes white with snow, apparently as strong and firm as Shasta or Hood or Rainier. But for some reason the volcanic forces within this mountain, which has been called Mazama, awoke to renewed action. The interior of the mountain was melted, and the whole mass, unable to stand longer, fell in and was engulfed in the fiery, seething lava. This lava, instead of welling up and filling the crater, and perhaps flowing out, was drawn down through the throat of the volcano into the earth, and left an enormous pit or crater where once the mountain stood. After the floor of the crater cooled and hardened, small eruptions occurred within it, and a new volcano grew up. But though nearly three thousand feet high, it does not reach to the top of the encircling walls of the old crater, which are, on an average, nearly four thousand feet high. Then the rains and melting snows formed a body of water in the crater, and the wonderful lake came into existence. No such sight is to be found elsewhere upon the earth. Within a circling rim of cliffs, from eight hundred to two thousand feet high and nearly vertical, lies the lake, rivaling the sky in the depth of its blue coloring. The height of its encircling cliffs and its five-mile expanse of blue water help to make the lake a spectacle grand beyond description. At the present time the volcanic fires appear to be entirely extinct. Forests of fir and tamarack have spread over the once barren slopes of lava and pumice, which extend back from the cliffs. In the hollows, after the lingering winter snows have melted, there are grassy meadows dotted with flowers. It is many miles from the lake to any human habitation, and all the region about remains just as nature left it. It was a happy thought to make another national park here. We have already learned something of the grandeur of the Yosemite Valley, and have seen how it came into existence. The valley is owned and cared for as a public park by the state of California, but, with Hetch Hetchy Valley, it is included in a larger park under the control of the general government. Within the boundaries of this national park, as in the case of the others described, the natural features of the landscape, the forest, and the animals— are to be left forever undisturbed. The Yosemite Valley, although situated in the heart of the rugged Sierras, is reached by several good wagon roads, and many more people visit it than go to Crater Lake, though the latter is fully as interesting. About a hundred miles south of the Yosemite is the General Grant National Park. This park is of comparatively small size but contains a group of some of the largest and finest big trees in the country. Still farther south, there is a reserve called the Sequoia Park, which contains the largest remaining groves of the big trees. There are also many state parks scattered over different parts of the Union. 
The establishment of these parks is intended to preserve either the forest or natural scenery. The retention by the state or general government of large tracts of mountain and timberland, and of those areas which are particularly interesting on account of their natural scenery, is of the greatest importance. The timber and water are preserved for the general good, instead of being squandered for the enrichment of individuals. The preservation of scenic features in their original wild state is just and right, because such things add to the pleasure of out-of-door life, elevate men's feelings, and cultivate a love for the beautiful. The protection afforded the plant and animal life by these reserves gives a better opportunity for studying them, and tends to foster a general interest in the welfare of living things. End of chapter 32 End of the Western United States, A Geographical Reader, by Harold Wellman Fairbanks.